a bigger picture than black and white. You have officers that are going to have to stand up. Racism, uh, homophobia, sexism, any form of ignorance, these officers of all races are going to have to some, at some point feel more comfortable talking about. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The president of the Ethical Society of Police is retiring, but she's not giving up the fight. That is St. Louis Police Sergeant Heather Taylor, and really, she should need no introduction. She's a 20-year veteran of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. And in recent years, she's been the president of the Ethical Society of Police. That's the union representing many black officers on the force. And she's been a thorn in the side of powerful people ever since. On Friday, Sergeant Heather Taylor retired, but not before one final battle with the city. And she joins us today to talk about it and so much more. So, Heather Taylor, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So first off, I have to say congratulations on your retirement. I know you're in the process of of a pretty big move here. What are your plans? So the plans are we've um, closed on a house in Florida, and we are moving there. My husband took a job there kind of unexpectedly. And so we're moving there and just, you know, just the process of moving you know, cross state lines is is very tedious. So that's where we're in the middle of right now. So this is not like you retired and now it's let the fun begin. This is you're out of the frying pan into the fire. Pretty much. So moving is always stressful. So that's what we're doing now. And uh, he started his job this morning. My husband did. And so it's, you know, we're headed back. I'm headed back to St. Louis now. So it's, it's, it's kind of stressful, but uh, less stressful than being a police officer in the city of St. Louis, that's for sure. It puts everything in perspective, having had that job, huh? Exactly. Much less stressful. So tell us this. I mean, everyone who knows you knows that you are not the kind of person who's going to sit around and just have a nice, quiet retirement. What are your plans for after you get done with this move and, and get settled in in Florida? So the ultimate plans are I, I'm going to still take the LSAT. Um, for law school in January. I'll still take that, but I'm going to likely take a year off Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of transition into retirement um, and getting going into criminal justice, um, uh, some doctoral program somewhere in Florida is what we're looking at that as well, because the drive to the one of the uh, closest law schools of a distance and to have to do that uh, several times a week would be, you know, kind of exhausting. But, you know, either one of those is the goal. Um, and But I will be stepping back from um, talking as much and having to do any of that. I still will be a part of ethical in a sense where as I help them transition um, as a, a, a spokesperson that they'll use sometimes to make statements that they can't make. Okay. Um, so you will be involved um, in you're going to continue to advocate for the black officers within this union and on the St. Louis police force that you, you intend to keep that role, even if it won't be a full time role. Um, so, yeah, I'll still be involved with ethical. And it's not necessarily for black officers, it's just for what's right, uh, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of the race of the, the officer or gender. Uh, I'll be advocating for things that I think are common sense when I have time to do it. It's not a full time thing that I'll do. It'll be scaled back, I would say, probably, you know, roughly 10 percent of my <laughs> involvement of what it was before. So it'll be very 
uh, very, very limited, only in um, circumstances that are kind of uh, exigent and that are of a, a, a priority to to be involved in because I, I'm out of state. Yeah. So, yeah. And retired. <laughs> These are two good reasons to no longer be quite as involved, but it sounds like you, you just can't help yourself. If there are some big issues that you feel passionately about, you intend to be back in the fray on those. Absolutely, because there are things that must change in our police department and things that are in the transition process of changing that we've helped to initiate, that we support, uh, that we want to see through. And those things that, you know, not a new board coming in, that don't they don't have that experience and understand the magnitude of what is involved in it. It's a long process a lot of times to change things. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few times has it been a short process when we started something and we've achieved that uh, within a short time span. You look at how what happened in St. Louis County with getting the MOU finally signed there. That was two years. Mm-hmm. So uh, these processes aren't... Um, Short, short at all. <laughs> and the MOU, that's the Memorandum of Understanding that allowed you to be recognized um, as a union there in St. Louis County. Is, is that right? Yes. Okay. That's the Memorandum of Understanding that we signed there. And yes. you referred to some processes that are in transition now and also some, some big things that need to change. I want to talk about those things that, that need to change in, in just a bit. But some of the things in transition, what are some of the key parts that you see is, is in the process of happening right now as far as the ethical society is concerned and that you want to stay involved with getting over the finish line? Some of the things are the collective bargaining agreement that has been historically uh, bad for younger officers and especially uh, minority officers who leave the department. African-Americans in St. Louis City leave the police department. Sixty percent of us leave within our first seven years. Hmm. So with things that are specific to that collective bargaining agreement, that CBA, which was created with the St. Louis Police Officers Association and Jeff Royda, has been um, very detrimental to diversity in a number of things. So we're working on that with some uh, civilian organizations and uh, pushing and fighting that internally. It was the subject of our most recent report as well, uh, where we outlined the problems with it. Yes, there should be something that protects employees, but this agreement is overstepping, and it actually fails to protect Um, minority employees, a lot of us, a lot of times, don't get jobs that we're qualified for with this process, and we're left to have Jeff Royda negotiate on our behalf, and we know that that's never going to be a good thing. You look at at what they did with Luther Hall and Milton Green, who were minorities, one shot, one beaten. So we have no faith in them um, actually doing what's right for us. And for those who are listening and aren't up to speed with some of the politics at the St. Louis Police Department, um, the union that represents many white officers, that's the St. Louis Police Officers Association. Jeff Rorta is their business manager and um, has been a thorn in the side of of many people who are concerned about race relations within the city of St. Louis. And and you're saying this bargaining agreement um, that they have with the city, that there's some things in there that are bad, not just for young officers, but also for black officers, since perhaps black officers are disproportionately likely to be younger. Is that a big part yes, of it? Absolutely. And you have you have a lot of um, things that are in there uh, that are just really just overstepping uh, with transfers into positions. And you have people who have education. Uh, we've had two members who actually one uh, is a pilot uh, and he wasn't selected for aviation. That division is all white. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have another young lady who applied um, for cybercrime. 
and she has a degree in um, IT. And so she wasn't selected. And plus, she has more than 10 years years on. And they said because she didn't have any investigative experience, she wouldn't get the job. Well, Hmm. she's a 10-year officer in patrol. Well, you're going to get an investigation every time you answer a radio call. That's an investigation. And... So those are the, the limitations, and, they, and a lot of times things are, uh, they pick and choose who they want, and you're left when you file a grievance to have Jeff Reuter as your representative. And we know that that's not always going to be a good thing, uh, especially for our officers, based off of, you know, the Luther Hall case, the Milton Green case. These were their members who were victims of crime. Mm-hmm. And we know that they're most vocal about victims, officers who are legitimate victims of crime. They're very vocal about that. But in these two instances, they were very quiet because those were their members. So they stood up for their, their members, um, despite, except for these two black members. Uh, so, you know, we can't, we don't trust that them in, in control of the collective bargaining agreement. It's necessary. You have to protect um, officers. You have to protect um, anybody that's an employee. However, you cannot have um, biases involved in that process. Mm-hmm. And that's what that collective bargaining most times does. Uh, for minorities, unfortunately. And and I should have been a little more clear as I was describing uh, the St. Louis Police Officers Association. Um, they are the bargaining entity for all officers, and that's why the work that they're doing, um, that has big repercussions for your membership as well. But Heather, I want to I loop back on something that you referred to here, that now that you're in your retirement, when you feel passionately about some of these issues, you're going to feel more free in speaking out on them. Um, and you have, it's been reported in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, that you were facing discipline for violation of the city's social media policy. And and this was not for the first time either. Um, When the city had first formed this policy, this was just a couple years ago, you were pretty outspoken in saying that you thought it would be used to stop you from doing your job. And and, uh, Judge Jimmy Edwards, who's in charge of the public safety department, he had said the point was to crack down on on racist posts, not to come after people like you. What made you so sure that they'd want to use it against whistleblowers and and truth tellers and and people who are representing a, a union like you? yourself? Uh, because uh, Director Edwards came to me specifically uh, kind of antagonistic with it. Uh, he approached me out of the blue mm-hmm. and said, hey, Heather, have you seen my new social media policy? And he was antagonistic about it. And and I said, I told him, yes, I did. And I told him that he was overstepping with the First Amendment and that we would sue you accordingly uh, when you targeted us for that. And it, it's it's what we thought it would be. Um, no shock that I was a test dummy for it, unfortunately. And there are times when it's needed. Yes, when officers of all races make racist statements, when they make homophobic statements, uh, it just you have to hold them accountable for hold us accountable for our actions. Mm-hmm. However, when you use that policy to silence your police association presidents, and you fail to separate. The problem with the police department is that they don't separate you as the employee versus the employee that's the police association president. You have to be able to speak up. Mm-hmm. You have to praise the department. You have to condemn the department when they're wrong, and they only want you to praise the department. And when you condemn the department's actions, you face retaliation, and that's what happens around the country. It's no different here uh, with what the things that have happened with me. Um, and, you know, for future, for the future, we have young, we have, we're going to have a new president. 
and that person has to feel confident that they can give statements that are that are fair, mm-hmm. whether they are condemning the department or praising the department. And if they can't give them in their capacity as a president of a police association, which is separate from their title as a police officer, those are two separate things. And the department mixes them together, and they use that policy, uh, the commander in, in particular, who, by the way, is on all three of my employee misconduct reports. I've never been in trouble before until she did it, and she's the one that's involved in all of them. And, and she started it. complaining about your outspokenness. Like, that was the, the root of all of these three complaints that she made. It, it wasn't anything you did as an officer outside of your role with the union. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and it's unfortunate, but, you know, it, 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 it comes with that, who am I? You know, I'm no different than anyone else that puts on their pants and, and gets ready for this job uh, in these positions. But you, the, the difference is that um, for me, I'm no different in that sense, but I'm going to fight it. Uh, I'm not going to stand for it. And we do want to say for the record, you were exonerated on that complaint. You still do have a lawsuit pending against the city. Um, they uh, they disciplined you for talking to a reporter without authorization. And as your lawsuit pointed out, uh, white officers had done that without facing similar discipline for that. So that remains pending and you're going to continue to fight on that. I imagine just as you're fighting, um, you're going to continue to fight against policies that, that you think are wrong. Yes, you have no no choice but to because it's it's bigger. It's a bigger picture than black and white. It's the it's a bigger picture uh, because you have officers that are going to have to stand up, that are going to have to call out uh, racism, uh, homophobia, sexism, any form of ignorance. These officers of all races are going to have to some at some point feel more comfortable talking about because it's a lot of it. And if we begin to come forward and be those whistleblowers, we're going to have to we're going to need protection. So this these lawsuits were filed because we had no choice but to file them. Uh, And you have to you have to show officers that you must stand up, that you can stand up. And that's what it's about. Uh, So there's a bigger picture behind it. Um, Of course, nobody wants to do these things. It's stressful. It's stressful being allegated and being charged with misconduct. I wanted to come into this department the way that I came in, a clean slate, uh, and to be exonerated twice and to have a verbal reprimand on one of them, uh, that verbal reprimand has to go. Uh, it, it, It was wrong. And you have to show officers that you must, and your civilian employees as well, that you are ready to fight, that you must fight. If you don't fight, things will stay the same. And we don't want that. We're talking today to Heather Taylor. She's newly retired as a police sergeant and was also the president of the Ethical Society of Police. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Heather. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com.
And now back to our conversation. We're talking to former St. Louis Police Sergeant Heather Taylor. She retired Friday and has been the president of the Ethical Society of Police, which represents many black officers on the St. Louis City Force, as well as in the county. Um, Heather, I have to ask you as you're here today, there's something a lot of people have been worried a lot about this year. I know police officers and non-police officers alike, and that's that this has been such a violent year in St. Louis. We could see the highest rate of homicides in 25 years. What do you think is driving that here in the city? I think a, a lot of things are consistently um, revolving around poverty in the city of St. Louis. Poverty is, is, is a problem here. Uh, we have to understand that uh, when you have such you know, high em- unemployment, things like that, there are a lot of factors that are generally behind violent crime. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes towards a lack of resources, uh, drug addiction things like that in poverty, those things are always intertwined with an increase in poverty. Uh, I, 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 I know that um, the numbers are, are just insane. They are. Mm-hmm. And every person is, is of value to someone that someone's loved one. And it's very difficult in our city also because of uh, the relations between the police and the community and the distrust so you have a lot of open homicide uh, cases as well because victims don't, surviving victims and witnesses don't feel comfortable and confident with giving a statement to the police uh, without retaliation. Do you think the St. Louis police have any handle on how to get this under control or how to, to get that clearance rate up for some of these murders? I think that um, there's a, uh, in the homicide division as it is now, um, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I think I think that there are good detectives that are left there, uh, left behind some of the best on, on my squad, hmm. uh, hands down, uh, with a lot of experience, and they clear a lot of a good majority of their cases. Um, however, you have to have a plan for cold cases. If you don't have anything in place to um, go back and reinvestigate cold cases, because you better believe that someone shot someone once, they've probably shot someone again. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these offenders are um, multi, um, uh, they've, they've done it multiple times. And the problem is, is that they're so overwhelmed that we've been that way since 2015, uh, 16, actually, when we had officers handling a high number of homicides where nationally traditionally you should have no more than five at one point some of my detectives had 20 in a year wow you know and so that's that's the problem and when you have a four-man or six-man squad and they have 20 to 15 cases that's and then you add on the cases from the last year that weren't solved Mm -hmm. or that you had a lead on and you couldn't follow up or you had to go to go out of state to travel uh the city blocks it's very difficult to travel to interview witnesses out of state. It's a long, convoluted, bureaucratic process. I've had that before, uh, where we've had scenes where someone's murdered. We had links, we had physical evidence, and then at the time, uh, Colonel Warnicke, now Colonel Warnicke, denied it, the travel. Hmm. Uh, uh, and in the meantime, that person had killed someone else. Oh, that's like and every detective's worst nightmare. It sure was. It, it's heartbreaking. And then we go and we finally interview this person and we get this lead and we we clear the case. It's like, well, if you would have not denied the travel beforehand, 
we would have probably prevented another homicide from occurring. Who, who knows if they would have held the person or not? That's another story. Right. We have physical evidence, and you have those problems. And then you also have the problems of some of the detectives. One of the, my last days physically at work, I overheard one of the detectives stating, you know, this person's life didn't matter. Oh, they didn't matter much. He was arrested before for a violent crime. Well, who are you? Who are you to say that? And this detective said that. I complained. Uh, and when I complained, I complained to someone that was of a higher rank than my current lieutenant at the time. And the lieutenant chastised me. Chastised said, you hey, for you. complaining about that? Yeah, I said I didn't follow the chain of command. Well, there is no written chain of command when you're making a complaint. And that detective is still in homicide. He was talking directly to his sergeant. So that's part of the problem. You have people that believe that one life is more valuable than another. It's like, hey, you can have people who have been arrested for violent crime in the past, but does it give anyone the right to take their life without defending their own their own selves in that? And so those are problems that you have, and that's part of why the clearance rates are what they are. Uh, you just there are a number of reasons involved in it, partly the police, partly a lack of resources and poverty. Um, and not all of this is, is our police matters uh, that we can resolve. There's a lack of conflict resolution centers. People don't know how to resolve conflict to de-escalate. And there's a lot of things that are on the elected officials. There are some things that are on the police department hands down. Heather, do you think, though, that 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 attitude you described where the homicide detective said this guy didn't matter, you know, this guy had a record, he was he was in the life, however somebody wants to phrase it. Do you think that's a common attitude amongst people who are who are tasked with trying to solve these cases? I think for some of them, there are some detectives that have those feelings. Obviously, this guy did. And he's still there. His sergeant is there. They weren't reprimanded. They didn't face any discipline. Um, I did because the lieutenant called me and chastised me about it. And his chastising of me about it was about the chain of command, not about what he said. Not about the not substance about the of those remarks. Exactly. Yeah, that seems extraordinary. Well, There's you been- have that. Heather, there's been so many incidents in the last couple of years of, of police misconduct and, and some that are, uh, you know, have actually resulted in death. I'm thinking of that Russian roulette uh, alleged game. Um, you know, there was also the ambush of a young man in a bar parking lot by a couple officers. The department keeps saying it's a case of bad apples. It's a bad apple here. It's a bad apple there. Do you think the problem is bigger than that? Yeah, I think that the problem has been going on for years, for decades. Uh, there is uh, one downtown bike sergeant who had been suspended for 30 days and 30 nights for using the N-word. We had a citizen complain on him uh, blaming uh, COVID-19 on Asian Americans that live in San Francisco. It was obviously racist. The citizen came forward, made a complaint. Uh, They couldn't make the case against the, the sergeant because one of the other witnesses who was a citizen didn't feel comfortable with keeping the complaint going. Mm. And so you have you have historically bad apples that are there that have been allowed to get away with uh, their racism, their sexism, their biases of, across all racial lines and gender that are there. It's not just within the last couple of years. This is something that we've seen for decades, that we've been complaining about for decades. It is a culture uh, of uh, silence that's so present in law enforcement that it's 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 overwhelming. 
So, so Heather, you were there for 20 years, and, and you really fought the good fight. You were such an outspoken advocate um, for so many things. Do you think things have improved at all since when you started as, as, a, as a young officer 20 years ago? I think things have improved because we've we've actually gotten rid of some of the commanders that were uh, present. Um, I, I honestly was glad to see Colonel Layshock retire. I'm glad to see Cur- uh, Major Howard retire. They were part of the problem as well. Uh, to see Colonel Caruso leave, and hopefully um, another colonel, um, black female, will retire as well. Uh, there are uh, people in command rank positions that should not be there, that have been there, held those positions for decades uh, that were part of the problem. And they, they, they empowered these officers. And they were of all races and genders. Mm-hmm. And they've empowered these behaviors to think that we are above the laws. And that's part of the, the culture. But I have seen it change. I, I do know that officers know across any race that if you do something stupid and they can prove it with a witness in ev- or some other form of evidence to cat to get you uh, in trouble for what you are accused of, you're going to be fired. Hmm. And we've had members who were fired who literally did some absolutely stupid and horrific things. And uh, it, just like the POA members, luckily ours aren't often, but we've had them and they've been fired. If they had a chance to fire you, you're, you did something, accused of doing something horrific, they're going to get you. So you think the uh, department is is taking misconduct seriously at this point? It's just a need of, of so many layers that need to retire and, and need to move on in order to, to have a clean slate there? Yes, yes. There's, there's so much historical um, or history behind this behavior that it's a culture. It's become a culture of systemic racism, a culture of this belief that we're above the law, and you're, you can't expect in a couple or three years with a chief who's dedicated to that. And John Hayden isn't perfect. Uh, I've had my fights and my battles with him. I haven't agreed with uh, some of his decisions. But when it comes to discipline and looking to do the right thing that's fair, I'll give him that. Hmm. He, he, that's, his, that's his sentiment to do it. When he can prove it, if you can prove it, just like in the court of law, if you can prove it, here it is. This is this is the final outcome. And a lot of officers have been terminated that were problem officers, uh, historically problem officers, hmm. uh, you know, uh, that were involved in the Plainview project. Ron Nighthawk. Um, and that, um, that Plainview uh, project for our listeners, that was when a, a national organization went and looked at a bunch of social media posts um, and found a whole bunch of St. Louis officers in there who had, had put some some pretty nasty things out on social media, in many cases quite racist things. Um, and and yeah. Heather, you're saying that the department took that seriously. Yeah, they did. And they were able to get rid of who they could legally. Um, mm-hmm. We talk about the First Amendment and getting rid of Ron um, Nighthawk, Hasty. Uh, he was one of them, uh, and you had some Mabry, Detective Mabry, who you saw their their posts. They were actually offensive across racial lines, but there were some. There were some that we felt they should have fired as well, that mm-hmm. they didn't get to. They were suspended uh, for a lengthy amount of time. However, they weren't fired. And, you know, so it, it's, it's, it, it was a fine balance with the First Amendment with what they could say and what they couldn't say. But to see some of these people go, uh, Shane Coates is uh, waiting for suspension. We have some other officers, uh, like Officer um, 
man, I can't remember <laughs> his name, but it, he, and other officers as well, um, Pinkerton, mm-hmm. uh, who was involved in a lot of things and a lot of uh, very racist statements specifically towards African-Americans. Uh, African-Americans and a lot of violence, he's suspended right now. So when they find out they're able to do something, but it's still a long process, they're not immediately suspended and fired because the city policy doesn't allow that. Okay, You can't do that. And when they do fire people up front, and most of them have been African-Americans, like uh, Major uh, Ryan Cousins, who they fired, and they came back and you saw all of the systemic racism involved in his case and how different it was handled. Mm-hmm. We are traditionally fired uh, for um, things that are not fireable offenses or things that actually weren't wrong. <laughs> so uh, and you, it's just a different level of discipline that happened uh, with his case under Dotson uh, and Heather, that, that actually leads me right into, I guess this is, unfortunately, we're sort of running out of time here, so this is going to be a, my last question, I think, for you today. But I'm curious, looking back at, at what you've seen in your 20 years and where things are today, if, if young Heather Taylor was thinking about joining the St. Louis Police Department today, or if you knew someone who was young and, and black and wanted to make a difference, would you encourage them to join the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department at this point? If they're looking to make a difference, absolutely. If you're looking for a job, no. If you're looking to make a difference, absolutely join. Uh, because I I felt like I've made a difference. And so you think even with all this stuff you've described and, and all of these frustrations and things that aren't quite being handled right, there's room for a good officer um, to make changes. Yes. If there, you know, if there was room for a Dr. King, uh, a Malcolm X, uh, you know, there is there's always room for anyone that has the true heart to go forward to to make change and to improve the plight of um, people who are uh, marginalized. There, there, you know, Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg. You know, there's always room for people like that. It's why these people exist, and we're we are here. We we haven't dealt with. 10% of what they've had to deal with, hmm. not even 10% of it. And if they could do it, you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg that held on, held on so long in illness, held on almost until the time of the election. Yeah. For us, for us. And so for us to say that, oh, I can't do this job because there's sexism, there's homophobia, there's racism, and you haven't dealt with anything. So who are you? So it's like when people praise me, it's like, don't praise me. Like praise the people before me that motivated me. So you are retiring, you are moving to Florida, you're on your way, but you are not giving up on the St. Louis Police Department. And I know, as you said, you're still going to be active with the Ethical Society just on a much more limited basis. Um, and I know there's a lot of people glad to hear that, that, that you're going to continue to fight that fight. So Heather Absolutely. Taylor, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And, and also, again, congratulations for making it 20 years. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. Or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempel and Lara Hamden, with production assistance from Aaron Dorr. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.